Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the 12th TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. The final round of the group phase is now well underway. Already, we've been treated the four excellent matches to decide once and for all who will make it to the most exciting rounds of the competition. In the early game, Senegal managed to put Ecuador to the sword in an unfortunate manner, winning 2-1. Aliou Cisse has now reached the knockouts as both a player and a captain, for that matter, and now manager. What a story. Meanwhile, Louis van Gaal's Netherlands went through as the group leaders, picking up seven points with nine, with a 2-0 win over Qatar. Cody Gakpo is on fire. Three goals from three for the PSVI and Hope and Star, who is reportedly being linked with moves to Manchester United and Arsenal. In the late-night fixtures, England comfortably brushed aside Wales to top the table, putting themselves in the last 16 where they will face Senegal, while the USA will face Van Hal's 2014 semi-finalists after edging out Iran 1-0 in a very cagey affair. In this episode of the podcast, we will tactically review each of the four games, but also previewing Thursday's fixtures between Canada and Morocco, Croatia and Belgium in a must-watch clash, Costa Rica and Germany, and Japan versus Spain in yet another can't-miss episode. It's lots to get into in this one, and I'm joined by Ronnie Dog Media's head of betting and affiliates, Lucas Mondelo, and TFA analyst, Brian Marquez, as we review the tactics from each game of yesterday's results and preview the coming games in yet another action-packed episode. Before we get into the tactics from each game, Lucas will be going through the latest odds in the betting market regarding each team. And so we ask that you make sure to gamble responsibly when taking the advice on board. And also make sure that you're over 18 and that you comply with the laws and regulations of your country. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. Lucas, Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the past 24 hours of World Cup action. We have a lot to get into, though, so I'm going to jump straight in and start with the game between Ecuador and Senegal. Senegal are true to the knockout phase of the World Cup after a 2-1 win against Ecuador. This is the first time they've qualified for the knockout to the World Cup since 2002, which they were then captained by the now-manager Aliou Cissé. It's a wonderful story. Um, I was quite impressed with them overall, I think, Throughout the tournament, they've been pretty decent. Even in the first game, which they lost 2-0 to the Netherlands, I was, you know, I think apart from their finishing, they were pretty decent. And then in the end, the Netherlands grabbed two late goals. We'll start first though with Ecuador because I'm quite disappointed to see them go. They have a really good team uh, with some really good players. I like how they play. Brian, I'll come to you first though on some of the issues they faced yesterday. Carolyn Carpenter actually posted this on Twitter and I he'd probably articulate himself better than I would. But there seemed to be a, a clear disconnect between the back line and the midfield in terms of the distances from the passes, so especially from the central defenders to the fullbacks. The fullbacks were pushing high, and they were looking to receive down the sides, but the distance was too um, far away, and it made Senegal's press quite easy. Um, am I am I speaking nonsense, or is that how you saw the game going as well? No, you're right. You're right. I think this was the most disordered uh, game from Ecuador uh, in a tactical way. Uh, I I mean, it's mad, you know, it's emotional. And it's one of the toughest games. You are fighting for the qualification. You are young and you have players with 20 years old, 21, 22. And experience in these moments always lacks and in moments where they have to go and fight for duels and all that, the timing wasn't the right one. And you can see they were panicking. 
and and, and more obvious when they were da- they were down and it, you know it's more an emotional battle rather than a tactical one in these kind of matches it's really tough to see a team that won uh, a that went really, really played in a really good way against Qatar, and then they draw against Netherlands. You Probably should have been in Netherlands as well. I mean, they had. They, they, I mean, the Netherlands, I think, had zero point one yeah. xG overall. They had almost. It was one point seven or nearly two xG. It was unbelievable. It 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 is, and to get it's crazy to get out of the World Cup because you draw with the Netherlands playing like they play in that game you can afford to lose a game it's normal it's common but i mean it, it, it was unbelievable again senegal with the midfield battle that is great they are playing very very good in the mostly in the midfield i didn't quite like senegal in the group stages uh tactically i mean they were a bit flat and attacking they were a bit off uh, you know, not that quite fast and threatening team that we were used to see uh, before. Ecuador finds some issues to find the midfielders and the fullbacks were having this kind of strange positioning. Um, they're playing with a back four uh, in possession and the fullbacks were trying to be inverted and not totally wide and that's the position and they have to to play when you're uh, building up with a back four and they were finding problems and mostly because Incapié looks for, for that uh, side progressive pass to Pervis Estupinian and that kind of pass arrived uh, very little in the game Franco I mean it was a bit lost. It wasn't in the same dynamic. He was replaced after half time, literally just just yeah. as soon as the second exactly. half. Exactly. And and I think Ecuador miss Mendes a lot. Yeah, uh, in, I agree. Uh, when when he wasn't on the pitch. I, I think Gresso it was the, the, the starter for this team in the mm-hmm. in the qualifiers for the World Cup. But these kind of players that made their debut in the national team, not not their deep in the national team, but you know they are started to be regular mm-hmm. in the World Cup. You just have to leave them because they they are on the big stage and they are enjoying it massively, massively. And wow, it was a really, really uh, sad game for South Americans because we all were rooting for Ecuador and the incredible project and all that you know mm-hmm. Alfaro said before the after the match that this team were were looking for revenge and and they will have it he's he was sure they will have it but it was so frustrating that he said that it may be his last match as a coach because he was so frustrating for him and his team uh, yeah I I, I Repeat again, this is the kind of matches that you go on the pitch being more emotional than tactical. And, and, and you can see it with that uh, tactical disorder from Ecuador that it wasn't um, mm-hmm. it wasn't seen throughout the tournament. It, they were a coordinated and dynamic team. They were covering players when they were going off. They were linking up the midfield and the 
def and the defensive line. So it, it was a strange game for them. It was a great game for Senegal, of course. Um, and I think the last half an hour especially was quite uh, a scrappy performance from both sides. And obviously yeah, there were for, two... From both sides. Yeah, there was two set-piece yeah. goals and Moises yeah. Casado sent Ecuador into elation with his goal. But I was quite taken aback by the... I suppose the ball watching on, on in both instances. I mean, they were pretty similar goals in terms of how they yeah. unfolded and the ball watching from they were the both teams on American. and okay, that's fine. Everywhere. most teams on American use use um, blockers, maybe three two or three blockers, and then you use on American with the rest of your players. But you still got to be switched on. It doesn't mean you stand stagnant. I mean, when when the ball made force contact, everyone just stood still in awe of, of this of the sphere floating in the air. And then of course it dropped to Casado and it dropped to Koulibaly, who by the way, for a centre half, that's a top finish on Yeah, know, it was a top finish. On his instep as well. That is what I talk about because uh, of the experience and the passivity maybe of the young players mm -hmm. because obviously they are inside a tactical uh, tweak uh, in these set pieces and they believe they don't have to move and they have to be that static uh, inside the set pieces or inside the pitch mm. and this kind of aggressivity was lost in, in this kind of situations and it was really bad for them. It, it was the bad defending for, from from both teams. It certainly was. It, it was a really bizarre last 30 minutes. And mm. um, yeah, it, at the end, Senegal is in. It's going to be an interesting game that against England, but we're going to talk about that in the future. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll move on now though to the Netherlands and Qatar. The Netherlands won two 0 Lucas, I'll come to you on the Netherlands. They haven't been. I mean, I picked them as one of the favourites to win the tournament, uh, just based on the results in in the UEFA Nations League and in the World Cup qualifying. They were they were really exciting at times. I know they like to keep the ball, and sometimes they can be quite it can be quite passive possession. I mean, Van Hal made a, a name for himself at Manchester United for that kind of you know purposeless possession. Um, I was a little bit surprised though in this tournament how just how kind of uninspiring they really are. You know, Cody Gakpo has been electric, and he's linked with at the minute with moves to Manchester United. He's linked with probably every top club in the world at the minute. And his goal was unbelievable yesterday. I mean, the link up play with Memphis to buy into him, back heel, I think it was Davy Klaas, and then back to Gakpo, who, it was a beautiful finish. And maybe he's kind of, he might carry them further into the tournament. Are they, in the eyes of the betting market, have their odds improved, or have they, you know, has it gone, which way has it gone in terms of their, them being one of the favourites to win the tournament? They still have big odds considering the opposition that they will have in the round of 16. They have average odds of 15 to 1 right now. But still, you have teams like Germany with odds around 12 to 1. Mm. So still, they're just the eighth most likely team to win the World Cup right now in the eyes of the market, which uh, I don't know if that is that correct if you consider the tough situation that argentina will face in a few hours in terms of the reality of the group in contrast with a team that is already qualified to the round of 16 
you have Argentina with odds of nine to one compared with almost fifty percent more to Netherlands. So it's still big odds considering all that. And uh, but Gakpo, you have the same odds compared with Richardson for him to be golden boots. And uh, yeah, I would I would say that Netherlands did their homework qualifying first in the group, but uh, they still need to fix some stuff to be, you know, I think contenders to go mm-hmm. all the way. In terms of, you said there that he has the same odds as Richarlison, who obviously has only scored two goals compared to Gakpo's three. Is the main factor for that behind them having similar odds, the fact that Brazil are probably, or well, they are the favourites at the minute, so it's likely that Richarlison will go forward or in the tournament, as well as the fact that Richarlison, I suppose, is a centre-forward, whereas Gakpo likes to kind of... Well, I mean, he plays he plays as a centre-forward, I suppose, too, but he, he's mainly kind of used them left or the right. The market itself usually cares a lot more about uh, how far you expect the team to go in the competition mm-hmm. than, you know, quality of players themselves. That applies to alt-rights, too, in a way. But uh, I think there is a factor here, too, that Brazil is expected to feel the fully reserved team in the, in the game against Cameroon. And one goal is not really that much of a difference. What surprises me more right now is if you see the Golden Boot, you know, odds now have Mbappe with the 3.4 as the mm-hmm. clear favorite. And the second one is Messi with one, uh, sorry, 8.5. But uh, considering his number of goals and the tough situation in the group, I wouldn't see him without, you know, uh, lower than Gak, a guy that is already qualified with three goals. And uh, yeah, these distortions sometimes represent some value to bet. In your eyes, then, your in your professional opinion, I suppose is a better way of, of putting that. Who's the best bet then for you if you were to put money on someone to finish as the top goal scorer this season or in the World Cup? I think Mbappe was a good bet before the tournament mm-hmm. and, and after round one because the odds were still good. You had odds in the house of seven, and now it's halved to three point five, three point four. So it's not good value, in my opinion. Because we just market you can bet more than once and, and kind of compensate for the losses with another big odd. But mm-hmm. right now, it's Mbappe's uh, as much as an, an, a not interesting bet as Brazil would be because of the low odds in, in the other red markets. And Richardson still has an odds of 9.5 as and Gapo too. So you could pretty much bet on Rashford, Gapo, and Richardson. And if you, if you win with any of these players, it would cover for the losses, and you could still pick up, you know, other big odds with mm-hmm. fracts, you know, um, smaller stakes, for example, Ronaldo and Ferran Torres and Giroud with odds, you know, beyond 20. So it's like you can pretty much bet like horse racing here because the odds are pretty much big, and it's a very different market compared with match result betting because of the, the size of the odds. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Ronaldo, he just needs a few more invisible goals to rocket up the table in terms of his stake for the Golden Boo. Just touching on the Netherlands really quickly, though. 
I've been really interested uh, in terms of Van Hal's setup using kind of David Klausen's a false nine. I think that's been a really interesting tweak he's used so far. That not many people are talking about. I mean, against um, Ecuador the other week, he basically played him as a centre forward. And he, I mean, yesterday against Qatar, I thought he was excellent again. He had a hand in both goals. You know, I think he, I think he, yeah, he got the assist for Gakpo's goal, and I believe it was his half space cross which led to De Jong's goal, which was some absolutely horrific defending by Qatar, who end as the worst host nation of all time, statistically, uh, losing three from three and scoring one single goal. Not a good tournament for Felix Sanchez's men. We'll move on now to England versus Wales. You spoke a minute about uh, a minute ago about Marcus Rashford. He scored a brace yesterday. Uh, I don't think he was wonderful in the first half. He missed a, uh, an unbelievable opportunity when he slipped through by Harry Kane and it was saved well by Danny Ward. But then he stepped up to bag an absolutely sumptuous free kick, followed by an unbelievable solo goal, and in between that, Phil Foden latched onto Harry Kane's ball at the back stick to make a 3 0. Wales limp home. Brian, talk to me about this game because Wales changed their formation, going from a 5 3 2 to a 4 4 2, and Aaron Ramsey kind of sat on Dec- Declan Rice. Um, it, I suppose it worked a little bit, but then once England scored the free kick, it kind of opened the floodgates because Wales had to actually attack, and that's not really what they're good at. Yeah, I mean, Wales changed their shape to a four four two. I mean, I think trying to be more compact and rigid, uh, closing spaces uh, for the midfield of England to to do their job. England went with Jordan Henderson in the midfield, and a little bit of a surprise, I would say. Yeah, it it is a little bit of surprise, but the four four two could be. A great decision if you know that the other team is going with Henderson because he's not that progression, that progressor midfielder uh, like Mount who appears uh, between the lines and through the house spaces. If you close down the, the block very deep and very close and rigid, it's a good decision. And But then is Obviously, um, quality superiority from England with Marcus Rashford, who is reviving his career in the, at the World Cup. This is amazing. The World Cup is literally reviving lots of careers <laughs> out there. And, well, one, that one career that's being revived, just, just speaking of that, the lineups for the French team have just been released. And Steve Mandanda is in goal. Yeah. France. Which is absolutely <laughs> sorry, that kind of distracted me for a second because I'm, I'm absolutely blown away. But your point is, is right about Rashford, that has revived his career also. He's having an excellent season with Manchester United so far. He's in the double digits now for goals, I believe, uh, which is unbelievable considering he was pretty low on confidence, I'll say, last year. And there was a lot of stuff behind the scenes. Yeah. Obviously, we, we, yeah. we won't speculate about and it's not our place to speculate. I'm, I'm glad he's in a better place now. He has admitted on Sky Sports before that he is. And England are true now to the last 16, where they'll face uh, Senegal for, for the first time ever, I believe, in the World Cup. Lucas, has, has England's odds changed then in terms of them being outright favourites after this game? Well, you have England with odds of 8.5, actually, which is surprisingly bigger than before this last game. I guess it reflects, in a way, the way the market is seeing the path to other teams like Brazil and France. Mm-hmm. 
So it's never an isolated equation, if you will, to, to analyze the chances of a particular team. And uh, yeah, England actually has odds very similar to what they had before the tournament. So you, you had a situation in which Argentina had a major change in the odds after the Saudi Arabia game, which compensated by, you know, lowering the odds of England. And after that, you know, the, the team was considered back into the race, Argentina, you have a situation in which, you know, the odds were recalculated. So England is pretty good in terms of odds right now with 8.5 on average. Because as I said about the golden boot market, you can pretty much bet on them and then try to compensate and buy France with mm-hmm. 6.5 and even Brazil with 3.5 and still, depending on the stake plan that you make, make a profit regardless of the team that wins the tournament. Of course, you would only lose if Spain, Argentina, sorry, um, Spain, Portugal, Netherlands and Germany, other teams that aren't included in this, uh, you know, multiple bet would win. Yeah, that's interesting. We'll move on now, though, to Iran versus USA, which was the final game yesterday. It was played at the same time as uh, Wales versus England. And I was, well, I mean, it was a draw for quite a long time. The game, I think, just before half time when Christian Pulisic put the USA ahead. Iran set up in a similar way as they did against Wales last Friday, I believe. I covered the game for TFA. They played with a, a, a kind of a 4 4 2 low block. It was, it's very rigid. I mean, Carlos Kiros, you know what you're going to get from, from Kiros's, his teams when they play. They defended really well against USA for large parts. And then Weston McKinney played a beautiful, beautiful ball to the back post and it was squared into the middle to Christian Pulisic, who put his country through to the knockout phase for the first time since 2010, which is an unbelievable feat. They'll now face the Netherlands. Brian, talk to me about the USA's chances then going forward and were you impressed by them in this game against Iran and their ability to break down such a tough low block, which was something they've been criticised before, uh, for before because of their, I suppose people people call it quite purposeless possession as well, like the Netherlands, and you know they they they, they struggled in quite a lot of games to break down deep defensive units. Yeah, they have been uh, struggling to break deep blocks or mid blocks that really close down the spaces. But against Iran, they were finding this. Um, Iran defend on a 4-4-2 and they were trying to really compact and be aggressive on the near side of the ball. So avoiding overloads and then change of orientations um, in the match. But that is where USA were the best. I mean, the diagonals balls from Team Rim to Sardinio Dest. And they find a way through uh, because of that. And only Serginho could appear in that wide zone because of the movements from Timothy Wea dragging the left back and moving inverted. So it, it, it was interesting to see that. And then Weston McKenney and Tyler Adams, uh, I think rotation was really good. They were rotating quite a lot and that really confused Iran on if they had to jump to defend more aggressive or if they had to weigh them and in the more advanced uh, heights it was Yunus Musa 
um, not playing in that distribution role, but more like into a half space player. And it was very good that because it, it really confused and Iran who really defend really well. But mm-hmm. at some moments, obviously, United States find the spaces because they are having the ball and at some moment you have to find them even if you're not if you're not scored the goal you you're going to find a chance so yeah that kind of diagonal balls and rotations from the midfielders really um did the job for the united states who i think they are a very good team and against the netherlands is going to be uh an interesting uh, game because probably tactically I, I wouldn't imagine yeah, entertainment wise it'll be it'll be at its peak yeah, you know yeah and Netherlands if they start to play good like we saw them in the Nations League mm-hmm. uh, trying to be more fluid and dynamic dynamic and not only against Qatar like all the teams of that group group play well against Qatar you know so yeah. they're going to find the tough team that really counter press and press very high and they exchange to a mid block and it's really good what their job defending we saw that against england by the usa and they were good and they don't feel uncomfortable with um playing transitions and waiting for the ball off the ball they mm-hmm. feel very good and the netherlands have been looking a bit off in their defensive transitions because the midfield defensively is not playing good and Van Dyke or Nathan Ake are not in their best form with the national team and even in, at, at the club stage uh, Van Dyke is not uh, that fast um, and well, that's why he a top has player. earned the nickname of Van Disney which I've never understood so yeah I never understood that, but I don't know what it references. To be honest, maybe I'm too old or something. I don't. <laughs> but you know, they have been a, a bit off in transition, so it's the kind of game I will expect yeah, Netherlands to have the ball and United States to be aggressive off the ball, looking for it, and then running with Timothy Weah, Christian Pulisic, or Josh Sargent, even Junos Musa, who is an incredible ball carrying player. He is. Yesterday, in yesterday's podcast, we spoke, we previewed the games from Group C and D, which are actually set to, Group D is set to take place, the final round in just under an hour, and then Group C is later on. And so, obviously, today we'll get to see the best player in the world, uh, Steve Mandanda, facing Tunisia. I think uh, Deschamps has made wholesale changes, <laughs> with the exception of Chouameni and Rafa Varane, I believe, are the only cha- two changes he hasn't uh, swapped out with. He's made nine changes to starting lineup, but if you want to listen to our preview of them games, you'd want to hurry up, but go back to yesterday's podcast episode to hear our thoughts. We'll move on now to previewing Thursday's games. Group E and F are set to kick off on Thursday between Canada, Morocco, Croatia, Belgium, Costa Rica, Germany, and Japan and Spain. Canada are already out of the competition. They've lost both of their games, and I think alongside Qatar, they were the first, I think they were the second team eliminated from the competition outright. Morocco, with a huge win against Belgium the last game, now have four points, I believe. And all they need is probably another point, a draw in this game or a win, and they should be true. We'll talk about Croatia and Belgium, though. Lucas, how are the odds looking for Belgium after, for one, the reports that have emerged about the, the players falling out and 
the fact that they've even against Canada, a game in which they won, they were pretty woeful. They probably shouldn't shouldn't have came away with a win considering the XG that Canada had was over two. And now they're facing Croatia, who are coming off the back of a 4-1 thrashing of Canada. If you consider the game, it's one of the most leveled ones in the tournament. The teams have pretty much equal odds to win the game, around 2.7, odds for the draw being 3.37. So I would guess the market considers Belgium, in theory, a team with better players, at least in terms of number of players with experience. In Europe and, and big Champions League games, stuff like that, Croatia is, is pretty much more focused around players like Modric. But uh, if you consider the outright odds, then we have Belgian with odds in the house of uh, 66 to 1 right now, and Croatia with 51 to 1. It's big odds for both teams, but uh, we can clearly see that uh, Croatia is now considered, you know with more chances not not by much but still it tells you something because in the beginning of the tournament the market was pretty much pro belgian in this sense um, in contrast with the croatia i think it's not just limited to the betting markets but pretty much to to the community that only sees the, the sports side that does blow me away a little bit considering Belgium are one of the highest ranked teams going into the World Cup. I mean, I feel, it feels like they've been number one in the FIFA rankings for about eight years now. Um, and now, as you said, I think they're, I think you said they're sixty-six to one, which is just unbelievable considering the talent they still have in the squad. Albeit, as Kevin De Bruyne said himself, old. Um, so that is quite interesting. From my own perspective, I would consider Croatia favourites in this game. I think, okay, Belgium on paper do have better players, but I think Croatia player playing far more cohesively. They are unbeaten. They got a goal to draw against Morocco and then they trashed Canada. Um, they look pretty decent, especially in transition, which is where Belgium have looked woeful. And again, the quote Kevin De Bruyne, old. Bryant, what are you looking for from this game then, from a tactical perspective? And how important is Luka Modric to Croatia's play? Because I think he has more progressive passes this, in this tournament than any other player in the competition. Yeah, that's his key role in, in, in at Croatia. Mm -hmm. The progression and the presence, even uh, you know, this player gravity thing, when you are Luka Modric, you're going to attract three or four players and you're making spaces for, for your teammates. And that is, at that point that you touch about the transitions that is going to be i think the tactically mm -hmm. uh, important thing in this game they are all belgium are looking awful not only in tra on transitions but in uh, all aspects of, of the game and but in transitions defensive transitions obviously they are looking very very bad and with players like modric that really put incredible through balls and then you have up forward Andrei Kramaric, who's having uh, really, he's having a really good season. And in the past, he's playing very good, you know, and, and constantly uh, between the, throughout the years. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be quite, quite uh, nice to see this battle between uh, players like Kramaric 
and Vertonghen other vital to see how their technique that we know they are very technical defending is is going to stop these kind of players that like to went out drop out his own like a false nine but yeah and Ivan Perisic on at the other wing is going to be another really uh tough battle uh in terms of physically pace and technical for Belgium I I am with you I think personally I see Croatia as favorites not for the players because obviously Belgium have really good players but the way they play and how Belgium have been playing I would really think that they could be off the World Cup mm -hmm. if Morocco grab grab up their, their three points and and just Touching on Belgium again really quickly, one of the youngest players in the squad is is um, Onana, who has had an unbelievable season so far from an individual point of view. He's been excellent in the World Cup, in my opinion. He's not available for Belgium. He's picked up too many yellow cards. So that's, again, another massive loss. I mean, one of their only you know, outlets of energy, I suppose, in the middle of the park is yeah. now unavailable. So I, I just... I just if if Roberto Martinez's masterclass is a win out of this game, I'll be I'll be shocked. Um, and fair play, but I just even if they do, I can't see Belgium going very far in this tournament. But we we will move on though to the final group on Thursday. The game is uh, there's two games between Costa Rica and Germany, and then Japan and Spain. Lucas, Germany need to win this game, or they're out. There's only fourteen champions. They've, you know, probably not struggled as much as Belgium, although they have picked up less points. They look pretty decent against Spain. Are they the favourites to beat Costa Rica, even though Costa Rica, are, again, are in a better position in the table? Well, some interesting stuff here. I mean, the odds for Costa Rica to win this game or even a match draw are the biggest ones I've seen this in the tournament. This The other, you know, the second place was Saudi Arabia against Argentina. We have Costa Rica with 22 to 1. And for a win. Saudi Arabia had 19. Yeah, and uh, Saudi Arabia had nineteen to one against Argentina, so it was the biggest uh, odd for a, a match result wow. in the one x two market in the entire round one of the World Cup. And here you have a situation in which you may not really want to bet in Costa Rica, and uh, you have the handicap markets which could be more interesting. And uh, you, right now, you know, the odds that, that stabilized in the professionals market, which is the Asian handicap with odds around two, I won't get into why this is how the professionals bet, but it would be a handicap of 2.5 goals to Costa Rica, which means you could earn 97% of profits if you bet in Costa Rica to win by not more than two goals. So you won't you would lose the bet if they suffered three or more. Mm -hmm. It's it's still pretty bold if you consider how bad Germany was in the beginning. So yeah, if you had you know the courage to back Costa Rica, this could be interesting. But personally, I would keep it. And I think unless you are a professional better and you maybe don't only have a. A, a couple of quid to spare for a bet. I would not recommend putting on uh, Costa Rica to beat Germany here because I think it's a lost cause considering they were hammered 7-1 by Spain. And I would imagine that the 7-1 or the 7-0, sorry, uh, thrashing against Spain 
probably the main cause between um for them having such high odds uh to be Germany. Well, what about what about Japan and Spain then? Because Japan did already put Germany to the sword, a big team. Germany had the lion's share of possession, and Japan was sitting deep and hitting them on the break. Are their odds slightly better? I, I would imagine they are slightly better. You have odds of uh, around 1.4 for Spain to beat uh, Japan. Uh, in contrast, uh, for example, to, to compare with another match, these are the odds that we have today for Denmark to beat Australia and Argentina to beat Poland. So we can say there are similar games in terms of the technical difference perceived by the markets. But I think it's a tricky group. I mean, it, you can't really make it a direct comparison like, oh, this team A has beaten team B and then how team C relates this way. It's not that logic to, to make this kind of assumptions because if you think this way, well, in, then Costa Rica has beaten Japan and has beaten Germany, then it must be better than Germany. So it's not like that. And uh, of course, you get a lot of memes in, in this you know time of the year when, when this kind of stuff ends up happening and therefore i would guess it's the group has been a bit unpredictable in well, my every, opinion every team can every team can qualify and every team can get knocked out and i think that makes for a really exciting final round yeah and uh, about spain i guess what what's not really good for betting here is uh, a promise that Luis Enrique has made before the tournament to be as aggressive as, as it gets. And uh, this leads to some kind of unpredictability, even against teams that are not that big like Japan. But if they defend well and explore counterattacks, it could be, you know, it could go either way. And when you don't have a clear scenario in terms of batting, it's not a good sign. Yeah. Brian, just really quickly, because we're we're a good bit over time here. How can Japan stop Spain then? Yeah, we were talking about this before the podcast. Um, Japan, I think, feels comfortably without the ball more than on the ball, and we saw that against Costa Rica when mm-hmm. Costa Rica sat a bit deep and they were really close the lines and they were really rigid in that uh, 4-5-1 um, with aggressive jumps of the, the striker to the centre-backs. They quite find the dynamic uh, electricity and movement they wanted, but they found a Costa Rica side that really closed massively the white spaces that is the space that Japan looks to exploit with fast mm-hmm. wingers and overlapping um, fullbacks like uh, Miki Yamane on, over the right. So it's going to be really good to see Spain, obviously, with the ball. They're, I mean, the most fun team with the ball in the tournament. But Japan are really good off the ball. They showed against Germany that tactically they were really good and they were comfortable off the ball trying to uh, win the ball back and then running mm-hmm. um, through the through the centre-backs um, or centre-back full-back line. Uh, they were very aggressive to do that. And Spain, 
against Germany did look very good on their rest defense. Also, Japan has a really good rest defense in their counter-press method. I wouldn't expect them to sat on a to sit on a deep block against Spain, but we have to see. You know, it's a really uh, important match for them, so it, it's going to be. Uh, it could be shocking if they go sit and, and, and they go and sit back, or if they press high. They both know really well to do that, and they're coordinated to mm -hmm. drop deep and set the shape to a 4-5-1 or a 5-3-2, 5-4-1. They have been really um, like uh, moving this shape, but they are doing this very good. So uh, the thing I will expect massively is to Spain obviously have the ball and Japan being more transitional that against Costa Rica where they have Uh, constantly the ball and they were creating a, on a positional uh, site but you know in, in the way of defending is what the thing I am thinking if they're going to be high or if they are going to be deep if I will be the manager of Japan um, I really I, I had headaches with that kind of tactical uh, uh, thing to go high and defend them because Spain really have problems defending, uh, building up with the high pressing of Germany <laughs> or to go deep. But if we go deep and not that contact like Costa Rica shown, <laughs> we are going to be trashed, you know? Well, I'm certainly looking forward to watching Group E. I actually think it's probably the most interesting group that's left at the minute I mean apart from maybe the final group which we'll get into in tomorrow's episode Lucas Bryant thank you so much for joining me today I really enjoyed this chat to all the listeners at home I hope you enjoyed too and make sure to tune in tomorrow as we review all of the action from Wednesday's games as well as tactically preview the final round fixtures of the group phase with some stellar games to come so make sure to check back in for that and share the podcast too as it really helps us grow thanks for listening and goodbye for now <laughs>